a passion is replaced with processes and and regulatory hurdles and and i think that medicine was an art now it's becoming a science because mm-hmm. we've got the code yep. but you know good medicine needs to have a mixture of science and art and uh, that's something that old school doctors certainly had they knew the art of medicine we're becoming fantastic at the science of medicine yeah. and the next stage is combining the two together you are entering the age rebels revolution the intelligent podcast for over 40s who want to live their best life and defy your numbers we are your hosts summer bentley and isaac xavier come on in our guest today is dr george muchnicki he is the executive director and chief medical officer for genetic technologies a world leader in genetic risk assessment he strongly advocates for curing cancer through early detection. He was central in developing testing that combined inherited and non-inherited risk under one umbrella with a focus on major causes of morbidity and mortality in oncology, metabolic and cardiac diseases. We have received so much positive feedback about this podcast and we absolutely love recording, editing and posting it for you to listen to. We would love your support and we would absolutely love it if you were to share this podcast with your friends. Welcome, George. Curing cancer through early detection. Knowing that early detection of cancers, the survival rate is up to 95%, whereas only 25% when it's caught in the later stages. What you have been central in creating is life-saving work, just absolutely life-saving work. That must make you feel pretty good, yeah? I feel terrific. Yeah, it's, um, how did you, you come across this? You know, you spent 24 years as a GP when we first met, which we'll tell that story. I think it's quite interesting how we first met. And he revealed to me, he said, I'm, I was sick of always being behind the eight ball curing cancer. I wanted to get out in front of it. So how did that all evolve? Okay. So first of all, thank you for having me on, on your show. Uh, I think it's great that there are people out there who are interested in better outcomes and taking control of their lives and their destinies. I think that the information that's available online today is unbelievable. And if you're truly interested, I, I, I think you can develop a knowledge which is as good as many medical practitioners. Now, my mm. journey into medicine starts with uh, Australia's first geneticist, who was my mother. And we, oh. came to, we, we came to Australia in 1966, and she was working at the Royal Women's Hospital. And she would take me into the lab, hoping that some of this positive, uh, the positive vibes would rub off on me. And I remember looking at uh, books about genetic abnormalities and chromosomes, and it was just fascinating. Mm. Um, and, you know, thereafter, I studied medicine, and uh, I, I graduated in 1981 from Monash University. And at the time, at our graduation, we were told that uh, we were going to be entering the, the world or, of modern medicine. And uh, when I started practicing, it didn't feel like such a, a modern world. And uh, after 24 years, there were a couple of personal events, and uh, I decided to move into new technology, 
mm-hmm. uh, because uh, I was so interested in creating opportunities for some of these fantastic technologies. And I spent some time working with stem cells and genetic engineering and drug repurposing. And some of these companies are currently listed on the stock market, such as uh, Mesoblast and Paradigm. Uh, Benetech has gone private, but my my big love was genetics. And um, when I discovered genetics, it must have been something in my mother's milk. <laughs> but I kind of understood that this was the only way to really look after this wonderful um, organism, which is the human body. And uh, genetics is the code. And mm-hmm. without a code, how can you possibly operate? And, you know, this is it's just the most brilliant piece of equipment you can ever imagine. All these variable efficiencies and technologies, detoxifying, blood producing, skin protecting, eye detecting, you know, all these systems within one organism, and they work so brilliantly, and we didn't have a code. Mm. And then suddenly the Human Genome Project, which uh, cost a billion dollars, produced uh, the code, the Human Genome Code, from end to end. And from that, various companies were spun out. And one of these companies is Genetic Technologies, which is the company that I currently work for, and mm-hmm. that's the company that I was working for when you met me. Yeah. And what Genetic Technologies has been doing and does is that it looks at your DNA and it finds associations with disease. So using information from a bank, a biobank, mm-hmm. so that's a bank that stores data, and that bank is currently in the UK, and it's been following the medical history and the genetic format of 500,000 individuals, mostly UK Caucasians, but mm-hmm. it's a mixed population. There's some people of Chinese descent, Indian descent, African descent. Mm-hmm. So we're getting some mixed DNA and uh, finding associations between your DNA and certain diseases. And of course, as time goes on, Everyone succumbs to a disease, and 50% of the people who succumb to uh, natural causes will succumb to cancer, and mm-hmm. about the other 50 will die from non-cancerous diseases such as heart disease or diabetes. Mm-hmm. And so we're, every year we're collecting incredible data, and that data now can predict your risk of developing medicine. And so that opens up a whole new way of practicing medicine. And it means that the new patient is the healthy patient, the patient who is yet Mm. to develop the disease. And the name of the game is to identify that risk and either manage it by preventative strategies or implement screening, which will result in early detection. And generally speaking, early detection leads to better outcomes. So that's that's Mm. a short description of how I ended up where I am today. And um, the, the, the difference between genetic technologies and other genetic groups like Myriad, uh, Illumina, uh, Thermo, uh, and so on, is that we look at risk from every perspective. And essentially, there's two perspectives. Mm-hmm. One, do you have a family history? So that's called inherited or familial. Mm-hmm. And the other one is, do you not have a family history, which means... Is, is your disease environmental or sporadic or dietary mm-hmm. or caused by something else? And 
that's where a physician has the confidence that you're not going to solve part of the riddle. Inherited disease usually is managed by one group and non-inherited disease is managed by a separate group. But by combining the two together, we've created this 100% from a genetic perspective risk profiling. It's cost effective. It's a saliva test. And it's available for women from the age of 30. And remember, and men and women, in fact. Mm-hmm. Now, re- remember that screening for diseases for which we do screen, like breast cancer, usually starts at the age of 50. Okay. And that's, that's where the government says it's in everyone's interest for us to have a program where we look at everyone, because this is a very common disease. It's yeah. a one in eight or one in nine women develop breast cancer. And we don't know who is more likely to and who is less likely to. So we look at everyone. And every woman gets a mammogram every two years. Now, that's a great leap forward from no screening. But now we have data which allows us to identify high-risk groups and low-risk groups. And what Mm -hmm. that means is there's some women who will never develop breast cancer, and they are having a screening test every two years. And there's women who need to be screened more often than two-yearly, some even six-monthly. Mm-hmm. And these, these are falling through the cracks. And then the first time um, their, their cancer is detected, it's already advanced. So mm-hmm. we've lost an opportunity to intervene or prevent. So this is where our technology is so different. Uh, I must tell you, when we first yeah. launched our, our breast cancer test, which was a very rudimentary test uh, about seven or eight years ago it was three thousand dollars for the saliva test yes three thousand dollars and now a current version and in fact the latest version which should be out in about six months time will cost under three hundred and fifty dollars and will give you much more information about more diseases so and less invasive too Because I've heard women, they say, I hate getting that test done. It squashes my breasts. It's really painful. It's undignified. So this is not only more accurate, but I'm sure women would have quite an aversion to getting tested when they have such an uncomfortable experience. If you love this podcast, give us five stars and we'll love you right back. And that, you know, what you, what you just mentioned is a whole new discussion about dignity and privacy mm. and patience. And, you know, as you get older, the doctor becomes a patient. And uh, I'm in my 60s now and I've got a few problems here and there. And I can tell you that it, it changes your perspective of our health system and, mm. and our health system can do better. Yeah. And, uh, and I wish that I, as, as a young junior doctor, had, had more experience uh, which would open my eyes to what the patients go through. And I, I, I think the health system needs to lift its game right now and uh, start working more closely with the end user, which is the patient. Mm. And there's too much talk about uh, the cost and uh, hospital beds and so on. And it, the government needs them to get into bed with patients. They need to spend a day, a week, a month in their shoes and then the government will start understanding the areas of need. But what could be more exciting or more fantastic than preventative health? Yeah, yeah. You, you know? 
Um, this, you've got your life is fantastic. Australia is a great country. You, you know, you've got a job. You've got, you can travel. You can have a family. It, it, it's all possible. And to be cut down or affected by a serious disease, which could have been prevented, it's a borderline crime. You'd have to say. Yeah. And when you talk about prevention, prevention, I've read quite a few studies where the when the patients are in the hospital, just by having pictures of nice landscapes, having just a much warmer environment as far as just the colours and the way they're treated and not being so clinical and cold, their outcomes are remarkably better. We can do better in many ways, mm. you know. And, and it, look, the hospital in itself is a wonderful institution and the people who work in these hospitals are incredible. Some of the best, smartest, most genuine people I've ever met. And the system, unfortunately, is rewarded for after the event. And that's what our system does, that we, we look for the rewards that drive the utility. And so it's, it's an opportunity for us to rethink. But things like uh, changing the way we interact with patients, creating better visual environments, uh, treating people at home where possible. Mm -hmm. Hospitals, unfortunately, carry a lot of uh, organisms and there's a lot of hospital-acquired infections. Yeah. Uh, th there is this concept of iatrogenic disease, and that's disease that's caused by the therapy. And mm. um, that's uh, wrong doses, um, wrong medications, uh, wrong patients, and so on. And unfortunately, these things still happen. And so it's a bit like clean fingernails. Some mm. things we can do in the health system which don't require a lot of uh, effort and they can deliver fantastic outcomes. Uh, but look, I, I, I don't want to move away from preventative health. Yeah. I, I don't often get an opportunity to talk about it. Mm. And, and, uh, and I urge people to get themselves tested. And I'll jump the gun and I'll answer your question is, as to who needs to be tested as a priority. Yeah. And I, and I think that with some of these diseases where there is a family history or a familial version of the disease, these people need to be tested. They need to know. And mm. I'll give you an example. Someone who's got a family history of breast cancer. This is where we have a lot of data so I can give you a lot yeah. of information. So breast cancer. Um, where there's a strong family history three persons on one side of the family or two, but on two sides of the family, one on each. Certainly if there's male breast cancer, which is not common, but mm -hmm. if it does occur, that is almost certainly associated with a familial predisposition or a gene. Mm -hmm. And uh, then people who've had an ovarian cancer at any age, you need to look for familial clues there. Mm. So this is a segue to what GTG's done, and we shouldn't. It's not. We're not pushing the, the company. We're pushing a, a, an ideology. Yeah. They've combined inherited genetic screening for breast and ovarian cancer, and then if those results come back normal, so we've eliminated a familial risk. Mm -hmm. We look at non-inherited or sporadic risk. And then we look at clues which are called clinical risk, mm -hmm. which is your weight, your height, your smoking history, or perhaps your dietary history and mm -hmm. so on. 
wherever there are clues, there we look. And one part that I've missed out, and it, that segues to that mm -hmm. case you, you mentioned beforehand, mm -hmm. doctors have to be a little bit more involved and they need to examine. And, um, and the reason I mentioned that is, Isaac, maybe you can mention the case of the yeah. ovarian tumor that yeah. you came across this well, story. Yeah, because that's the, the, I really wanted to focus on um, ovarian cancer. It came across my consciousness, uh, I think over a decade ago when I heard it being called, it's, it's such a silent killer because the symptoms are really general and can be really easily interpreted as something else. And this one woman um, that was, I read about yesterday at, in the ABC website, her name's Hannah. She was diagnosed cancer, ovarian cancer at age 24. And she says, I wish I'd been listened to earlier. And she said, that first it was a recurrent urinary tract infections told to take antibiotics. Then she was feeling bloated and her periods became more painful and her appetite was changing. And she noticed all of these and, and tracked them really diligently on her phone. And then she went to see another GP um, and he said, no, you're just stressed and you need to lose weight. Then later she moved and then she went to see a new GP and he said, you know, your BMIs just maybe a little bit high and it's like you've got to you've and then we've had a look referred her to a gynecologist said you've got uterine fibroids and it went on and on to the point they said no no you've got an ectopic pregnancy pregnancy and then eventually emergency surgery because she was in so much pain and a 20 centimeter tumor had burst out of her ovary and there's an actual photo it's quite graphic uh, and she's lucky to be alive so Someone like that, because I'm not here to criticise doctors, I think, you know, they've got such a hard job, especially in hugely populated areas. So with someone like Hannah, and I'm sure there's a lot of women out there, what do they need to do to be listened to? They don't want to come across as hypochondriacs and it's like bloating, is it food, is it what? So what do they actually do to, to, to you know, not end up like Hannah did with a massive tumor having to be removed. Well, you know, what, what a sad story. And mm. it, it, in the story underpins the difficulty of identifying ovarian disease generally. And look, without knowing the case history and mm -hmm. seeing, seeing the results of the scans, because you'd think that if they were able to identify fibroids in a young woman, it's mm. unusual themselves, mm -hmm. That would have been with a scan and they would have detected something on the ovaries. But that, what this tells us is, number one, with ovarian disease, often there's no symptoms, all right? It's internal. You mm. can't feel it. You can't feel it. You can't see it. Very different from breast cancer where it's a lump that is often presented uh, with a patient examining themselves or their partner mm. feeling feeling their breast and saying, this is, I can feel something. So this, this statement, I can feel something, will only apply to ovarian cancer if you examine the patient internally and if the cancer is a certain size, because if it's very small, you won't even be able to feel it. So mm. you need to have a doctor that you see regularly that you trust, mm -hmm. and that doctor needs to work with um, medical protocols and that that's the way medicine is moving so yeah. we're moving towards sort of AI or 
intervention as much as if someone comes in with pelvic discomfort or pelvic symptoms, there's got to be a checklist and that checklist needs to be done. And even mm. though ovarian cancer is one in 500, um, the one you don't examine, you'll miss. And I think that our health system, unfortunately, spends a lot of time dealing with the majority, the, the 50-year-old. Mm rather than the 30-year-olds yeah. with pelvic disease. And, and you, you can understand that's, that's kind of how society functions. And that's why patients have to assume some of the responsibility because they pay the ultimate price. So first of all, there's not enough time to see your doctor these days. You need to have a deep relationship with your doctor so they, they are comfortable. They know when something is wrong. Yeah. They don't just know you as a Medicare number. And that's, and that's unfortunately what the health system has become because of the politicization of, mm. of services. But you, you need to establish a relationship with someone. And that person is someone who then will either delegate or investigate. And then when everything has been exhausted uh, and you're still unhappy or still suffering with symptoms, you need a second opinion. That's the beauty of medicine. Mm. A good doctor loves a second opinion and should work very closely with the other doctor because they're on your team yeah. working towards solving a problem. So don't be scared. If you're feeling something, you don't think that the symptoms have been addressed properly, get a second opinion, get a third opinion. If, yeah. if it ends up being a psychological diagnosis, which is always at the end when you can't identify anything, you should even look at that with some degree of skepticism, yeah. right? Because it's up, it's your life, it's your pelvis. Yeah. So, so I, I just want to tell you a little bit about ovarian cancer and yeah. what sort of issues we're having with the health system. Our health system is evidence-based. So we've discovered this wonderful tool, which is able to predict who's got this problem. Now, the health system's problem is how do we manage this person of high risk? Because we don't have a system that's been validated as a good way of assessing risk. And that is something that is true, that we do rely on data to hone a system. But we do have a lot of people with risk who are being managed according to the doctor's own experience. And what I mean by that is, let's say with ovarian disease. Mm -hmm. When I was a doctor, if I believed that my patient had an increased risk, knowing that ultrasound is a great tool mm -hmm. for detecting ovarian abnormalities, I'd be asking the patient to have, have six monthly pelvic ultrasounds. Okay. I'd form a relationship with a gynecologist from the start and introduce that patient as a high-risk individual. And that specialist might get in touch with me and say six monthly scans are inappropriate. They need to be, you know, 10 monthly or 12 monthly. But mm -hmm. the point is you've created some sort of a program to address risk. You're bringing in somebody else to give a second opinion and someone with great expertise to refine that risk. And I think that's a great start. There's a third mm -hmm. element, which is going to be part and parcel of the way we treat these problems, and that is liquid biopsies. And mm. um, so, so the DNA story has gone to the next step where we can look at the DNA of the cancer 
as opposed to the your own DNA and say, hey, someone's got cancer in their system. We can see these DNA markers of cancer. And this will solve a lot of uh, issues regarding screening and early detection, management of risk. And you mean this with is, ovarian cancer? It, it, how would they, when you say... Every cancer. So, every cancer. So what sort, of, a, what sort yeah. of test would that be where it's, you mean, for example, the saliva test from genetic te- technologies would do that and then that would give you a level of, of risk? If you're ready to age young, discover the truth about accessing the fountain of youth and claiming your best ever health, check out our beautiful website at agerebels.com where you will find freebies, programs and more. So the genetic test mm-hmm. predicts your chance of developing disease. Yeah. And then we need to create strategies to detect disease if it develops in its earliest yeah. format. Okay. How do you do that with ovarian cancer knowing that it's hard to detect? Because that's the one that's really caught my eye. I thought had, Correct. if it's in stage one, what? How, how would you know it's there? You'd have to do it right now with ultrasound, mm-hmm. plus or minus MRIs, let's say, if mm-hmm. there was a pathology that was visualized better. Mm-hmm. And in the next year or two, there'll be blood tests to complement the screening protocols. Oh, good. Okay. So, so the test, the saliva test looks at your DNA. The blood test looks at your DNA and circulating tumor DNA, bits of ah, the tumor. Okay. But there's, tumors have different formats. So we'll have to create tests for all ovarian tumors because the last thing we want to do is test for something that uh, we, we don't have a, a profile for and we give someone an okay result, a thumbs up, and in fact something's mm. broken. Okay. So these, these tests, and these are referred to as liquid biopsies. Okay. So they're the equivalent of a surgeon going into the abdominal cavity and taking a sample of a suspicious material Mm-hmm. And then take, sending it to a pathologist, and the pathologist studies it and says cancerous or non-cancerous. So a liquid biopsy bypasses the need for surgical intervention, and it also may replace expensive and uncomfortable screening. So I'm mm-hmm. going to go back to mammography. Mm-hmm. One of the issues that people have with mammograms is you're actually introducing a little bit of radiation every time you do it, mm-hmm. and it's uncomfortable, and there's parts of the breast that may not be visualized. So there's a question of accuracy. Okay. Now imagine if you had an accurate blood test which identified tumor at stage zero. Stage zero, which is often referred to as dysplasia, dysplasia it hasn't spread. It's very localized, very superficial. Possibly the cells are a little bit abnormal, but don't have all the characteristics of cancer. Mm-hmm. So stay, if you're going to get cancer, stage zero is the best stage. Mm-hmm. And imagine if you had a blood test that detected stage zero, then you go in with mammograms and CT or MRI scans mm-hmm. and uh, so on and so on. So this is something that's almost certainly on the horizon. And this is all as a result of the Human Genome Project. So 
I got to give a plug here for research and government initiatives. And this is very important because people often talk about drug companies getting paid a lot of money and mm -hmm. what's the government doing and so on. The UK Biobank was essentially a UK government initiative, but very well funded by large groups, large farmers. So drug developers and other genetic companies like, mm -hmm. like the one I mentioned already, Lumina Thermo yep. Fisher. As a result, we've created magnificent data which is disrupting medicines, creating better outcomes and now creating this preventative health platform. So we're talking about millions and billions of dollars, money very well spent, and we will all benefit from it. So I, I think that we need to support research. We need to support the best form of research is where you have public and private groups getting together. Mm -hmm. Because the biggest vested interest group is the government, and they've got the resources. And uh, now a lot of these large companies have demonstrated an ability to deliver products, to deliver solutions. So we need the partnerships, and we need to bring all these great thinkers together under one roof. Let me just throw in that I've just been, been on a trip to India. Yeah. The second most populated uh, nation on earth. And we went to a whole bunch of hospitals talking about some of these genetic solutions. And uh, currently, uh, their Prime Minister Modi mm -hmm. has created a policy where he wants all Indian citizens to have some benefit from genetic innovation. And that is as a oh. result of, of what happened in COVID where the country came to a standstill and um, there were just, the hospital was overrun, people yeah. were dying on the streets. So they understand that it's, it's of national importance to have control over your health assets. And so we went to all these hospitals and, you know, these were, I've never seen anything like it. These were private individuals. And I'll talk about the one in uh, a little city called uh, Mangalore. Bangalore, mm -hmm. which is south of Bangalore, mm -hmm. uh, and Bangalore is a huge IT hub. Mangalore only has, uh, I think, 20 million people in that in that state. And the hospital owner was um, he, he made his money out of exporting timber, mm. and and it was his desire. And he came out of poverty, and he just told when I met him, told the story how he started, and he worked for somebody else, and. He, he offered to, anyhow, he, he made it and he's very successful and, uh, and he, his way of giving back, he said, was through the creation of these hospitals together with the universities. So the ho he built a hospital, built a university, and I went around and they, they didn't have a lot of resources, but they had incredible brain power. They had wonderful doctors with, uh, you know, just, I looked at the car park there versus the car park in hospitals, a mm -hmm. very different car park. <laughs> I can imagine. You know, we saw a lot of Corollas and little Suzukis and Tatas and so on. Mm -hmm. These people worked overseas. They were trained in Memorial Sloan Kettering and, and all these American hospitals, and they were publishing and they were breaking ceilings and they were introducing all this innovation to little country hospitals, and they were fearless. And I had to say that I was so excited to see doctors uh, working in the way I thought doctors should work. Wow. You know, it wasn't about the money. It was about this whole idea of creating a better community and, 
when we gave a talk, like 2,000 people rocked up, and then we gave a second talk, and a whole bunch of nurses and nursing students came, and they asked if I could do a podcast for them about new trends in medicine, especially mm -hmm. genetics. There was this hunger for knowledge, and they offered themselves, you know, so of course the most difficult resource is human resource, if they could help in any data collection or clinical trials, and, you know, this is a very exciting wow. way for people to get involved. Unfortunately, in places like Australia, everyone's looking at the regulators and their, their points and they need to do this and that. The passion is replaced with processes and regulatory hurdles. And I think that medicine was an art. Now it's becoming a science because mm -hmm. we've got the code. Yep. But, you know, good medicine needs to have a mixture of science and art. And uh, that's something that old school doctors certainly had. They knew the art of medicine. We're becoming fantastic at the science of medicine. Yeah. And the next stage is combining the two together. Right? And, and that'll be determined by the user experience. So. If our patients live longer and they're healthier and they're happier, then we as, as doctors have done the right job. So having experienced all of that and knowing that testing, like, for example, if the government were to fund all of the testing, how much, how, what percentage of the population would you say that would, you would say, okay, if the government's paying for it or at least subsidising it, how, what, what sort of people need to be tested? Like our listeners say, okay, do I need to be tested? Should everyone get the saliva test that not only detects for cancers, but all, all of the you know, major disease, diabetes it's, and cardiovascular, et cetera? What would you advise people to do with regard to I think testing? Everyone needs to be tested. Mm. And look, the way we operate now, I'll give you an example. You go to your doctor and he checks your blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And he does that because if your blood pressure increases, it may lead to heart disease down the track. Yep. So do you say to your doctor, don't check my blood pressure because I don't want to know? Mm. Or do you say, yeah, check my blood pressure. Oh, my blood pressure is high. Let's manage that. Yeah. Now, if, if you extrapolate that and you're having a baby, and you, you want to make sure your baby's born healthy because mm. there are some conditions which are not compatible with life. Mm. And so you want to spare a lot of heartache to this child, to yeah. the family. And so currently there are tests. They're called carrier testing and NIPT. Last year, I believe 200,000 um, individuals, so that I suppose means 100,000 couples, mm -hmm. uh, that test. And it leads to uh, a healthier community. So um, right now, all, all people are encouraged. There'll be reimbursement soon from the government because the government understands that everyone benefits. And so these tests will be paid for uh, either wholly or partially. And I think the same applies to um, adults. Yeah. You want to be healthy for your children. You want to be healthy for yourself. And just as you allow yourself to be tested with regards to blood pressure or a blood test for cholesterol, because you don't want to have a heart attack. Mm. You don't want to be a, a, a cancer survivor. You, you just don't want to have cancer. That's, yeah. the, you know, it's as simple as that. So I think that 
if you can have a decent discussion with your family, with your partner, with your GP, and you ask that question, can you do something today which will prevent me from being unwell, suffering, possibly dying, spending money, upsetting my family, you know, and my community tomorrow, then I, then I want to do it. So look, my, my dream is for these tests to be free. Yes. And uh, because I, I know as a doctor that uh, you want to remove hurdles to implementation. Some people don't have a great concept of 10 years in the future or 20 mm. years in the future. Um, but when it happens and you're lying in bed and you remember what I said on the podcast with Isaac Xavier, you're going to say, geez, I should have spent a few hundred dollars 10 years ago. Well, it's I an investment. Yeah, it's an investment in their health, isn't it? I wouldn't be here today. And, yeah. you know, if, they, if, if, if the advice is to lose weight, to exercise, eat good food, have an x-ray every 12 months, not bad advice, not a big deal. I will mention insurance. Insurance can't harm you. There's a moratorium. If you're getting insured for under half a million in life insurance, you don't even have to disclose your genetic information. I urge everyone who wants to get insurance, get insurance, be tested afterwards. Mm. I, I actually believe your risk goes from high to average if it's identified and managed. So um, I, I actually believe that insurance companies will encourage you to have genetic testing. And, and I think that they will do better as a result of coming onto our program. So one of the mm. things that um, we've, we've only got limited resources, but one of the things that I'd like to investigate is creating an insurance product and demonstrating the benefits. So we actually do have a study, uh, which is called the BIM, uh, which is an impact study. And uh, what it does is it looks at what happens if we were to test all the women in, in the United States mm -hmm. for the risk of breast cancer and then adjust management. And it showed that we would save the health system $1.4 billion. And there would be a upstaging of all cancers. What I mean mm. by that is there's, you know, there's four or five stages of cancer, depending whether you call stage zero stage, but there's stage zero, stage one, two, three, and four. Mm -hmm. Early detection means people who are now detected at stage four will probably be detected at stage three. Yeah. And people who are now detected at stage three will be detected in stage two. As, so we call that downstaging. Mm -hmm. So then we can calculate the benefits of downstaging because each stage has got different costs different outcomes. And so the BIM study that we did in America, and we're currently introducing that to the American uh, system, health system, and demonstrated absolute benefits. So if that's breast cancer, and if you can then apply that to colorectal cancer, another horrible cancer, mm. prostate cancer, pancreatic cancer, and, you know, the data is increasing. Now we can predict ischemic heart disease, which is the number one killer. Mm -hmm. We can also predict type 2 diabetes. So if each one of those is 1.4 billion, let's say, yeah. we'll round it off. Yeah. And, and it means less hospital beds are being used, less hospital resources. There's more room in the theaters for other surgical procedures. We know how to plan for the future. We know how many doctors we're going to need. 
we know how many x-ray facilities we're going to need. It just, it's, it all makes sense. Yeah. On that, and, that, you've answered my question in, because I was about to ask you that, that, that governments are going to save themselves just so many billions of dollars and an immense amount of suffering and pain if everyone gets tested. So yeah, that, it needs to be eventually free because the investment initially is going to save all this money and all this pain, you know. So, that's right. Yeah. George. It will happen. It will happen for sure. Are we running out of time, I think? Yes, that's right. George, we <laughs> are running out of time. So I just <laughs> wanted to ask you, how do we go ahead and and get advice on where to get this saliva test? Is it our GP? Where do we go? Absolutely. So this is a podcast. Can we yep. can we share a link? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll put it in the notes. Yeah, but what's and the... then you there's a link, and then we'll we'll tell you how you can order the test. You can also order it online. Your doctor has to be involved in the process. Uh, this is new technology. A lot of doctors will not be aware of it as yet, and that's that's kind of our fault. We, we need to go on a massive uh, program to educate and. There are some modules embedded in uh, the current uh, uh, CME programs for doctors, and mm-hmm. they can learn about our type of genetics. And um, But we'll leave that link for you yeah. and create that opportunity for people to order. What's the, web, what's the web address? It's gene... Genetype.com. Yeah, yeah genetype.com. So people are going to even have a look at it. And it would be really helpful for you and your intentions to be able to get this out to the world and to make it free for everybody if people, when they go to the doctor, make it aware or make their doctor aware that this is available because I know my doctors in the past when I've brought something to them, they've been very curious and willing to look at the information. Well, that's, that's terrific. And look, the, the medical system is uh, always a few years behind published data. So we've just published our data and it takes time to digest. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of other programs competing for the doctor's headspace. So there there is a bit of an excuse for them not knowing, but shortly everyone will know about this because uh, this, this is without a doubt the way of the future. That's Fantastic. What an amazing conversation. I didn't speak because I was so compelled by what you were saying and uh, I will share with you, I'm hoping we can have another conversation in the near future on the podcast uh, to share more information with people. But I will share my story with you then. Uh, but I was so compelled by everything that you were saying and it's certainly incredibly relevant for me right now. So I'm very grateful for your time today. Yeah, thank you. My and, and I did My mention, pleasure. and I'll mention briefly, I met George because I took a trip from the Gold Coast down to Melbourne, got an Airbnb, and I needed a car park pass, and it was the Airbnb. George was the owner. Wow, and, that's so and cool. So I love the universe just bringing I people love together. It when that, it was, happens. <laughs> that was like so random, and I'm so glad we met because this is just the beginning of the evolution of, of um, our relationship because genetic testing, I've been tested. I've advised my client to get tested various, you know, smart DNA, other sort of things that are non-threatening life issues. But this is definitely the way of the future and saving, yeah, okay, billions of dollars, but saving people just immeasurable pain and suffering that they just don't need to go through. 100%. Exactly. Started with the car park (laughs) and ended with saving thousands of lives. And they say if you save one life each, will save the world. Oh, that was tingles, tingles from head to toe on that, George. Thank you so much Wonderful for your time. Wonderful way to wrap it up. Thank you so much for your time, George, because I know you are one very busy man. Thank you.
See you soon. Thanks, bye, George. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Bye. What a conversation, Isaac. Yeah. Well, and that's the whole thing. It's about ovarian cancer because I heard this like silent killer. I think, my God, I, as a woman, you'd be really concerned. We didn't talk about things like Angela Jolie. She got yes. tested and she said, well, the odds of me dying, I'm going to get it all removed. And, and it's not just a matter of saying, oh, I'll just got body parts removed. That's a process and there's a lot to go into it. But um, if it's going to save your life. Well, uh, yeah, my my friend who was living with me only 12, a bit over 12 months yeah. ago, passed away at 33 from breast cancer. Yeah. This could have saved her life. Yeah. Uh, I have just had my third melanoma removed. Mm. Thankfully, it was pre-stage zero. The other two have been stage zero. It could have helped me prevent yeah. a lot, a lot, taking a lot more action or, or, um, I've just been very l- lucky. It was my gut instinct took me to the doctor and saved my life three times now. Yeah. So I will certainly be looking into this and how I can put measures in place. So I can only imagine how many people out there are light bulbing all over the place. And the thing is not to frighten people, but I was listening to this wonderful podcast, Sarah Grinberg and, um, Zach Bush, and they were Zach, if you look at ZachBushMD.com, um, oh, amazing. he's insane. He's so good. Basically, since 1990, one in four people got cancer pretty much across the world. Now it's 50%. It's, it's you know, one in two people are going to, to get cancer. I think you've experienced it. Last year I had four precancerous polyps removed from a bowel. And we're both, you know, at the top end of healthy. Yes. So the really people help. that aren't, yes. uh, you know, would yeah. be in a much higher risk category and we've been touched by it. So, Isaac, thank you for taking that trip to Melbourne and for using that car park at the <laughs> most perfect time. Yeah. Amazing conversation. Thank you. Pleasure. We are so grateful for the feedback we get about this podcast on a weekly basis. It's literally changing lives. If you like any of these episodes or you just love the podcast, we would love it if you could share it with your friends. Thanks for joining this podcast. Want to take the conversation further and learn more about how to live an energised and pain-free life as you age? Then jump into our website at agerebels.com. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Age Rebels Revolution. Revolution.